Johnson Mount has star power. He's an individualistic man, it seems to me, a builder both in real terms and metaphorically speaking. I wish Gene Roddenberry had had a chance to meet him, as he is an ideal Star Trek captain. He was superb on Hell on Wheels, and it's wonderful to see his Captain Pike, who, while a strong leader, is quite different from the put-upon but magnificent Cullen Bohannon. He and his friend Brannon Edgens showcase a wide range of artists and subjects on their podcast, The Well. Anson is exploring new worlds every day, in real life as well as from the universe of Star Trek. He's become a father. Live long and prosper. Well, welcome, Anson. Thank you Thanks. so much. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this uh, on your spare time. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I've been doing a deep dive into your life. Oh, boy. I, I've been very impressed. And I love your podcast, The Well. Talk about that a little. The the podcast, um, The Well, is it was just sort of a, an idea that I'd been hip-pocketing for several years. And um, then it occurred to me one day that uh, it would be a lot of fun to do it with my friend Brannon, uh, who is one of the smartest people I've ever met and has a deeply, deeply curious mind because we really, we have these conversations <laughs> anyways. Uh, and, and also it's, it's led us into situations and in conversations that we never would have pursued if we hadn't laid down this gauntlet for ourselves, you know, I never would have imagined that I would be going, uh, driving into New York next week to sit down with Lori Anderson. Oh, <laughs> you know? wow. Oh my and, God. And I've never All right, would have imagined the jealousy. Be, oh. <laughs> I never would have imagined that, that, that I would be sitting, uh, in a room with Anthony Hopkins uh, explaining to me how he built the character of Hannibal Lecter or that I would be, you know, I would be cornering, um, Alice Cooper to tell me about his golf game. <laughs> it's, uh, and also, you know, it's just nice to be able to find out things about people from a different angle. Cause I, you know, as, as, um, an actor, celebrity like yourself, we often find ourselves getting asked the same 10 questions over and over and over again. And being also being a consumer of pop culture, it has it, it occurred to me that we're not really getting to know people that way. And so it just seemed, um, it seemed like a, a better idea to ask Lori about dogs or ask Anthony about his music composition or ask Alice about his golf game, then, then just going to the stuff we already know. Right. Um, when did you, I remember seeing pretty much every performance Lori Anderson ever did in the uh, early years. Uh, I, I, she's pretty amazing. What was the first, when was the first time you ever became familiar with her work? Mine was uh, a spoken word album she put out under the name um, The Pretty One with the Jewels, which mm. is the title of one of the short stories in the collection. Uh, in its written form, I believe it's known as Stories from the Nerve Bible. And um, I, I would listen to it over and over again. Uh, it was just one of the strangest and most compelling things that I'd ever heard. Uh, and I don't often listen or read stories several mm. times over, but but this one I, I did. And it really spoke to me, not just as a listener, but as a as an artist and what it means to be an artist. So she was sort of a natural fit uh, for us. And our our theme composer and one of our best friends from college, Jonathan Myberg, happen, happens to work with her in some capacity, and he he kind of put this together for us. So that's a good segue into The Domain, Siwani. Um, oh yeah, that's um, from everything that I've read, and also from the magnificence of that campus, and what the professors say that they, you know, they're what they want to teach, what how they like to teach. Um, it's very clear that it it was a very big part of your life, 
And the fact that your father and grandfather went there, I don't know about the great, great grandfathers, but um, it's, it's obviously something very, very important. Talk about that a little, what, what it means to you, what it meant to you at the time, and how you've, are there any transitions you've gone through with it? What still is uh, very important to me as an alum, um, and for people who've never heard of Swanee, also known as the University of the South, uh, it's, it's very strange, you know, it's sort of like south of the Mason-Dixon line, everybody's heard about it, and as soon as you cross the Mason-Dixon line, nobody's heard of it. Yeah, I had never heard of it. But it's a it's a very good, small liberal arts college, Episcopal liberal arts college in the mountains of Tennessee. It's been around since the 1850s. It's stunningly beautiful. There's a huge amount of acreage, forest, 65 miles of, for hiking. It really gives you space to think if you're a have you been, Have you been? No, I just have been Googling yeah. it. Yeah, it's one of the larger private campuses in the country. And yeah, it's it's a it's a kind of Eden, uh, and it's very it's very particular college. It's a it's uh, just a little support community. The the mayor of of Swanee is the vice chancellor of the university. That's how small it is. It's a work hard, play hard school, um, and there's something just really magical about about the place. Now. I'm a legacy because my father went there, but my father went there because uh, at the time, you know, he he had um, signed up when he was 17 or 18 to fight Hitler and wound up uh, in, on an aircraft carrier in the Atlantic. And then at the time, as part of the GI Bill, um, you... you you were automatically accepted to whatever college you wanted to in your home state. And it was a uh -huh. full ride. And my father kind of looked at the colleges and he just picked the one that was most expensive, <laughs> which happened to be Swanee. <laughs> and uh, he was a uh, fish out of water. He had to take all remedial classes the first year because they figured out he had the equivalent of an age, eighth grade education. Seriously. He did not grow yeah. up sort of with the same. And he was not from uh, the well-to-do families of Nashville or Memphis or Atlanta. You know, I have an old uh, annual of his and beside each, and it was a men's college at that time. And beside it, each student below their name was listed where they're from. And it was always, you know, it was Bill Mead, Nashville, or it was, uh, you know, the nicer neighborhoods of Atlanta. And under my father's name, it was, why bluff Tennessee Cron Hollow Road, <laughs> and and um, uh, he ended up majoring in biology. Hmm. And when he tested, um, when he tested at the end, um, he was he was outpacing most of the students at Swanee and Vanderbilt. So, so what was tell me about his upbringing, his growing up? Yeah. What was that like? Well, my father grew up in. Same town I grew up in, White Bluff, Tennessee, and he uh, his his father had died when he was an infant of tuberculosis, and uh, his mother ran a boarding house and raised geese. His nickname was Goose uh, when he was a child. Uh, he was a Boy Scout, um, and uh, when he was about twelve years old. His his uncle, who owned a whorehouse in Nashville, had given them a, I don't know what kind of radio it was, but it was it was a nice radio, and, and they could never have afforded it otherwise. And he turned this thing on when he was 12 years old, and he heard the most beautiful thing he'd ever heard in his life, and it was classical music. Mm. And when he was 13, he found out that the Minneapolis Philharmonic uh, which was the Philharmonic in the United States at the time, was going to be in Nashville. And, and it was at the time being led by a composer named Dimitri Metropolis, very famous Greek composer. My father hitchhiked to Nashville, took him all day, and uh, managed to sneak his way backstage because he arrived early and he, he found the stage manager who was drunk, allowed him to help load in some of the instruments and so he's 
backstage in his overalls and Dimitri Metropolis comes in to take the stage and before he before he makes his entrance he looks over he sees this boy and he says you who are you <laughs> my father said sort of explained himself and and um uh Dimitri said you come with me my father thought he was going to be kicked out so he he takes my father he sits him on the front row oh, wow. and then he 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 conducts the entire evening and then afterwards he takes him to dinner with the first violinist and then has his his chauffeur drive my father home to White Bluff. Wow, and then the next day he comes to visit uh, White Bluff and he meets my father and all of his Boy Scout friends and meets my grandmother and he convinces her to let him fly my father uh, to New York, uh, to see New York. And this became a, a, a yearly tradition. Uh, my father would fly in, he'd be met by uh, Demetrius's right-hand man and he would be taken to Bloomingdale's and dressed and then that's amazing he would, he would he was he was taught elocution and table manners and all these things but he'd rarely see Dimitri because Dimitri was so busy but um eventually he did you know Dimitri ended up sort of supplementing his uh his education my father yeah he was on the GI bill but who was going to pay for his books who was going to pay for his boarding who was going to you know and so Dimitri helped out with that. And one day after my father graduated, he was, I believe he was about to go back in, in for Korea. And he met Dimitri in New York at the Harvard Club, uh, brought a showgirl with him, which was, <laughs> which is. Wait, your dad brought well. the showgirl or who yeah, brought the yeah. showgirl? Yeah. Okay. My father brought the showgirl. Okay. And then, uh, and Dimitri, um, uh, it was then he said, you're, you're an adult now, you've grown up. Um, I'm an old man. I'm going to die soon and eventually. And uh, um, you need to go on and live your life. And I don't ever want to see you again. And uh, so he did. And before he was going to go back in for Korea, he got tuberculosis and ended up in um, a VA hospital in Florida for two years, having a piece of his lung cut out. And all he had to do to waste time in in uh, the VA hospital was to he was trying to learn how to paint, tried to learn how to play the banjo, and then he read about a, a, a short story contest that was going to be uh, the winner would be published, and I can't remember if it was the first or second issue of Playboy magazine. Uh, but my father entered, and he won first place, and got published. What was the story about? <laughs> it was called The Taming of the Rake, and it was a it was a really fun body. Uh, story. I, I need to go and find it. It's been a while since I've read it. And uh, and they called him up and said, you can't enter any more contests, but when you get out of the hospital, there's a job waiting for you in Chicago if you want. Yeah. And so on a total, a total arc, my father went to Chicago and signed on a playboy was a just a half a floor of office cubicles nobody was making money my father had to drive a cab to supplicate man his in income because he wasn't making any money and because he'd gone to an episcopal school half made him the the religion editor because half was very smart he knew he was either going to invite a boycott or he was going to invite a debate and my father was in charge of creating the debate so no, that's great yeah for a long time, my father was was touring the nation, going to colleges and universities, having debates with the clergy or religion professors about the new ethics, which, at, you know, at the time to Playboy meant, yeah, America says thou shalt not kill unless it's for your country. Thou shalt not steal unless it's providing for your family or providing for your political party. Um, but if you sleep with your girlfriend, you're going to hell. What? Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Right. And so this is what part of what led into the sexual revolution. And so around 1968, after that had firmly taken hold, um, somebody had said to Hef, your men's magazine, why don't you have a sports column? And uh, he said to the, to the board, he said, uh, you know, who here has, knows anything about football? And nobody raised their hands. And my father said, well, I, you know, I watch the games on Saturdays. And he said, that's it. We're killing religion. You're taking sports. Go. How did he meet your mother? And what was happening there? Like he's off doing okay. these, these well, this lectures. Is, this is long before my mother. This is before his first wife. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's like about what age now? He's about, he would have been late twenties, early thirties, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and as you can imagine it there at the, at the, at the founding of, of Playboy magazine and being present for all that took place or in and around that, um, it must've been a hell of a bachelorhood. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, th I, that thought has certainly crossed my mind. My mother was in a very different position being a woman in that situation. And, uh, um, I was very much a feminist and went to a radical university. I graduated from Brandeis, which was only, it was a couple thousand, maybe 3,000 students. So it's so interesting just to hear about all these different perspectives and what's happening, what's opening up one's life. Well, it's it's interesting looking at how the concept of, pro of progressivism has changed. Because at the time, you know, they thought they were on the forefront. They were right. in lockstep with, with um, you know, Dr. King and Jesse Jackson and, and Malcolm X and the equal rights. And, but, and it, uh, it, it looks very different from today's perspective. Well, it? also because something, I mean, you know, Hugh Hefner, he might've had this fantastic purpose when he started the magazine, but then he sort of seemed to just go into this other place of hedonism. So I want to hear about your mother. Like, who were you closest to growing up? Your mother or your father, do you think? Or was it- My mom. Yeah, my mom, definitely. I know that he, your father died when he when you were 13. Um, he, my father had three kids and was divorced. And uh, even though he had taken on sports, he was still having speaking engagements at different colleges and universities around the country. And he was, I believe that's what he was doing when he met my mother. My mother was a, an assistant golf pro. Uh, she was 23, 20, 20, 23. She's 23. And where'd she and grown up? She'd, she'd grown, grown up in Seneca, South Carolina. And, but at this point, she was in Bristol, Tennessee, a very eastern uh, tip of Tennessee. The county where her golf club was had gone wet and um, one of the liquor stores, that we, she knew that people are going to be open up one of the liquor stores and she wasn't really happy in her position. So she quit and took a, a job as, um, as the retail, um, retail manager at, at a Smart. liquor store. And one Thanksgiving day, they're working a half a day and they're trying to get out of there. And um, my father walks in and uh apparently he's looking for uh, i don't know what he was looking for but he 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 asked my my mother for a recommendation recommendation for a bottle of wine or something and um oh no i'm sorry this was the day before thanksgiving and he had asked my mother for a recommendation he came back the next day when they're trying to get out of there and he walked straight up to her and gave this long speech that she doesn't remember but it ended with and if you promise to have dinner with me, I promise not to molest you. And she said, uh, uh, okay, all right, here's my number. Get out of here. We're trying to close it. So um, nice. she went to dinner with him and spent the entire week with him, weekend with him. And um, then he flew back to Chicago and she, she thought, well, you know, that's, that's that. And uh, he called shortly after and said, I, I wish I had a reason to come back and see you. And she said, well, as a matter of fact, the winter ball is coming up at the golf club, at the country club, and, and out on the date. So if wow. you would like to come down and be my date. And he said, absolutely. So without telling her, he flew down two weeks early. And he walked into her apartment, and she had the flu. Oh, and, and the place was a wreck. And he looked around, and he said, you need help. <laughs> And he cleaned the place from top to bottom and wow. nursed her back to health. And then at the end of the two weeks, they went to the ball. And on the dance floor, he leaned into her ear and, and said, will you marry me? Wow. No way. That's and so she said, romantic. And she just said, uh, yes. Wow. And so they went and found her boss and gave her, gave her two weeks notice. And then uh, he flew back to Chicago, drove down in his car, loaded up the car and drove to Chicago. And that was that. So when you were with your mom. I still am not clear about like what her parents were like. If you're not coming from money, how did your mother um, pick up golf? Well, uh, when she picked it up, I want to say when she was 
16, she was at the club or her father played golf and she was hanging out with friends just at the swimming pool. And they, uh, one of their, their foursome dropped out and he said, come on, you're going to be our fourth player. And she, uh, she hit par golf her first time. No, come on. And, really? That's incredible. Her father said, well, you're, you're a natural. <laughs> and she just fell in love with it. And then wow. um, she did one semester of college. It wasn't for her. She dropped out and then started pursuing, um, pursuing it as a teacher and a professional. Wow, cool. So she came from a little, I mean, if they were belonging to a club, they had a little bit more than your dad had growing up, I'm assuming. Yes, they, okay. they did that. Uh, they were, my, my, my grandfather owned an, a newspaper. Uh, so, uh, but he, he was not a wealthy man, but they, he had done well. Right. Got it. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I, uh, in my deep dive, I did see the, uh, Instagram post of your mother with Clover in her lap, driving a golf court. And it made my entire week. <laughs> that's that's the coolest, most fabulous thing I've ever seen about a grandmother and a child. I, I love your mother. Just I don't know her, but that is my kind of woman. She's she's a tremendous amount of fun. And you yeah. can tell she's very powerful presence. Um, yeah. So then what your dad died and your mom had to uh, what, what how did you guys um, stay afloat there? Did she have to go? She was teaching golf all this time, right? Did she drag it, you to the club yeah. to watch her do this, or how did, did oh, you yeah. have babysitters? Oh, okay. Yeah, I would have to go to the, go to the club with her, um, or uh, you know, when I got a little bit older, I would just get, I would walk over to the high school field house and I'd work out while she was working, and um, it was it was not easy uh, on several levels. It it obviously there was less money coming in. Um, and, but she, she works her butt off and, and she also, she had to be both my best friend and my disciplinarian mm. and to walk that line. And she did it very well. I have to say. You said something like your mother taught you how to just be who you are, develop your own personality. And, uh, so that stardom, celebrity or whatever didn't affect you in a really negative way. Can you like elaborate more on that and, and also share possibly a really good memory that you have in your childhood of something that really bonded the two of you? Sure. Um, yeah, she did this thing that, that I still remember to this day and it was so awesome, is that every now and then, you know, in the morning, you know, if I'd, if I'd come over and like, I'd jump into her bed in the morning, she would say, do you feel like going to school? <laughs> and of course the answer was always no. And this is usually, you know, these are the days where she happened to have a day off. I never put two and two together, but, um, and we would go into Nashville and we would go, we love to go antiquing together. And, Cause we would also refinish We'd buy furniture and refinish it together as sort of a side stream income. And, um, and then after that, we would go to the movieplex and we would watch like three movies back to back. Oh man. She is so cool. And it's part of the reason, it's part of the reason I started acting, I guess, is because I just wanted to do that. That thing yeah. that I was seeing on the screen, telling these stories that made my worries go away for a while. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and, um, yeah, she's just my my mother. If you met her, you she there she is one of a kind. There and she doesn't give a hoot what anybody thinks about her. You know, that's and, that's really freedom. But you know, it's like anybody. I'm sure you went through it in your twenties or thirties, and I certainly went through it. Uh, the that just constant game of comparison that we do to ourselves in this business. And cause especially when you, when you, when you're living, find yourself living in LA, which I did for a while, or at least working in LA and everywhere, everywhere you turn, your competition is in your face. Everywhere you turn, whether it's the magazine stand, it's the 
you know, the, the billboard, your friend, uh, the, the, the call you're getting about a job you didn't get, the people sitting in the restaurant that you can't afford to go to. It's just, it's everywhere you turn is in your face. I think, I think LA gets a bad rap. I don't know why I'm defending it because I couldn't stand it when I first got here, but I think actually it was when I was artistic director and built that theater in Atwater Village. I think I was blown away by how many amazing people there were. A lot of them New Yorkers, ex-New Yorkers out here doing theater and trying to make it, make new work happen in these hundred seat theaters, you know? And, and I suddenly loved all the different people butting up against each other in, in uh, LA. Right. But well, what, for whatever reason, you know, when I was in my, my early thirties, it was not a good place for me. I was just not, it just wasn't working. And, um, thanks to a mother who, who'd raised me to sort of know what's important. And for a, a very good manager, um, Emily Gerson Sainz, who told me you got to live where you're happy. Mm. Um, I got out of there and, uh, and then went back. I was only there for about five years. I went back to New York and that turned out to be the ticket. You can't create if you're not happy. I don't. Yeah, think. I think that's true. When you feel you are really being creative, what is happening inside you? Of course, there's, there's a reason why all of our major religions center around a creator, not a summoner or <laughs> or a, a weaver or a, you know or a, or a I don't know or, um, there is there's something about the the act of creation that is intrinsic to being a human and is probably an offshoot from the fact that we are a we are a herd species but yes we are also creative animals I I agree but is creative thinking learned or is it natural Oh, I, I think that I, I think to to create is 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 a natural instinct to to invent, to create, to pick up the stick and turn it into an axe is is intrinsic in our in our nature. I think that to become a craftsman, excuse me, craftsperson. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> is uh, it, I think that that is learned. Yeah, I think that yeah, that okay. is to 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 then decorate the axe is learned. Yeah, you make furniture, right? Or, or what do you do in your? I'm trying. You're trying. It's it's hard. <laughs> I lived with someone who was just the mo most remarkable builder of furniture of anything. Anything he could turn wood. Oh my god, and and it is uh, it's just that thing of ten thousand hours, you know, or how 10 million hours it's just doing it and doing it and then these things just start to happen and often from mistakes which is true mm -hmm. with i think acting you know some mm -hmm. of the most incredible things happen when there's a mistake or something goes wrong so how do the ideas come for what you want to do with these skills sometimes it's out of almost an unconscious or a dream or two unexpected things you know just kind of tie together you see something and there's a flash and you go oh my god i could use that in in this and something mm -hmm. starts. Do you have any of, the, what are the moments like that for you? Are there moments like that when you're either working on a part or you're trying to make your piece of furniture? Yeah. Talk about that. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the bed I'm making right now just came out of, the inspiration for that was the, the bed I wanted cost $9,000 and I wasn't <laughs> gonna pay $9,000 for this freaking bed. <laughs> and now, I'm like, it's like two years later and I've probably sunk in at least that and materials <laughs> and tools. And I'm like, my wife has been very, very patient. Um, that's so symbolic. I mean, come on, I want to make my own bed. I, that's beautiful. But I would never, I would <laughs> never have taken that on if I had not put in four years as a stage carpenter and had some translatable skill. And then there's now this amazing thing called YouTube that- right. That is that is very very useful. Oh. Um, in terms of acting, I, you know, I don't know. I don't even know where to begin. It's, um, I still feel like it's such an ephemeral art. I almost feel like I have to reinvent what acting is for me with each role. Yeah, and I but have 
and I have different ways of doing that. I love to steal. Mm -hmm. I love to do my research. I love, uh, I love, oh shit rolls. The rolls where you read it and you go, oh shit, how am I going to do that? And then you just got to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. You get um, out of the comfort zone. I love, I love building a character. I love yeah. not building a character. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, my last big gig, Hell on Wheels, was very much a character. Pike is not so much. Pike is sort of going more for Manson's gut. Um, I don't know. It's it's a different way in each each time. Yeah, it's so interesting because Hell on Wheels, which I, I really thought was an extraordinary series, and I was in France trying to build my home out of this ruin of stone. So I was sort of out of L.A. for a long period of time, and I think that's when it was airing. Mm. And uh, when I came back and saw it, I was blown away. It's an extraordinary series. I think the fact that it's also based in history, so such a rich history of what America is. You know, I, I think I mentioned this to you when I first met you, but I mean, I the way you would gallop across a plane on a horse, the, you were so driven. There was something so riveting, like I had to go on your journey with you. Um, I couldn't refuse, you know? And, oh, and you. I, I thought that was really extraordinary. When you get a character, I was going to ask you two things. One is, um, what did you learn from Michael Howard? And the other one was, um, have you ever done a role on stage? Probably this wouldn't work in television where really you, the energy was you were almost trying to disappear. You know, there's some characters who they, it's like their power is in the fact that they almost disappear. And then obviously at a certain point, um, they take the, the screen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, with Michael, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I studied, I studied maybe half a year with Michael. I had studied with one of his um, teachers uh, that he taught, uh, Larry Singer. I'd studied with a while, okay. a long time before that. But that I, I'd come to a place between jobs, and I just wanted to sharpen the knife, and just yeah, kind of went yeah. into Michael, and it just that it just turned out not to be the way in for me. Um, does that mean that, I mean, he's a brilliant teacher. So is Larry. Uh, but that's a very particular kind of American school that very much came out of Strasbourg. Yep. Adler, you know, that, that's, that is a, it's a very American way in. And for whatever reason, that's just not how, that's not how I function as an actor. Right? I'm more from the outside in, in a way. Exactly. Although, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, but that's because of all my movement stuff all my life. Yeah. I mean, same here. Same it, here. And it, you can, and it, you know what it like you you have no choice yeah you're right. you're one or the other and yep. you just got to figure out which one that is and then study to it play to it um for me it my 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 end was or at least i can't say it was necessarily my end but my savior was clown in in graduate school and that's what made me realize oh okay all right well it made me realize a lot you know yeah um, well it is it puts it right back on you you realize that you you know, the power is there. You have to take it. The power is in vulnerability, all, all kinds of things. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, but you yeah. have to be so present or it just it's gone. In well, a second. that's the that's the big secret. They don't tell you at the at the beginning of Goliath clown is that a clown is not really a character. Right. A it's, clown is just a safety blanket. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that so that you show up. That's right? really interesting. And, so, you know, Goliath taught. The first class Goliath ever taught, I was in it. Oh my he, gosh. Yeah. Really? He was, no. Yeah, no, I'm that old. Wow. Right? So I he was not considered that great of a teacher at that time. We all thought he was not good. And then he became <laughs> really good. But but I'm serious. We liked uh his partner Pierre Bilon better. But Lecoq, Lecoq was massively getting into the clown when I was studying there, which was 1970. And um so we would have different people, but it was basically Jacques who was teaching us. And uh, but Goyer, I think, is much more tuned into the specificities for helping actors make that transition. Um, because I've seen how he teaches. I've taken a workshop later, and it was like night and day. But it is such a powerful thing for actors to experience, for anyone basically to experience. I don't think you have to be an actor. Um, you learn more about yourself and how you can get in touch with that, right? 
I, yeah. I'm dying to know what some of you, I wish I could see your improvs. Oh my God. You know, what was the, what was the improv that just sort of, you finally went, okay, that's, that broke it open. I don't, I don't know if there was any, I mean, it, it can't, it became apparent to myself and my classmates that I was flying after uh, a half a year of busting my head against the wall and thinking I was going to quit. Uh, oh, wow. Something, something locked in, right? Can you verbalize what it was? What was it? What, what locked it in? Look, I, you know, you'd go up with your gimmick, right? And 99 times out of a hundred, the gimmick, the gimmick bombs. That's where the magic starts. And that's right. Is a, how do you handle that? I don't, I don't know the the fourth wall came down, you know, because right. in American schools, they teach you to build this fourth wall. And I'm sorry, it just, it does, it just, it got in my way for years and I didn't even know it. Yeah. I didn't even realize it. This, this idea of keeping the, the audience isn't there. You're in your own world. You have your, you know, it's your experience. Well, fuck that. <laughs> Quite honestly, <laughs> fuck that. It's not about your experience. It's about the, and it's not just about the audience's experience. It's about the room. It's about connection. It's about the encounter. Exactly. Right? Did you read the thing I sent you the other night about Arian Manushkin, who was one of Lecoq's first students? Um, I, mean, I, I did not, I've not had a chance, but no, we studied Manushkin uh, as, a, as a director. She is to me the one who just changed my life. She, it was, uh, it was 1970. She had, I saw and I, I saw the Mephisto that she did. It was so groundbreaking. And it was what she says, you should read that article because she's still going strong today. Mm-hmm. And she talks about, it's not a production you're going to see. You are going because there's this encounter that happens between people who are performing and you're the audience. It's this active thing. You're going to sort of, you go to theater to change your life in some way, to wake you up. Now, every major school in the United States and in in England now, they didn't have it before, but now everyone teaches Lecoq stuff. And it's, it's fantastic because they're finally saying, okay, we've had this from the inside out. Now let's take the outside in. And people can use either one they feel like using or they can blend them together. Sometimes I'm acting something and I do go from the inside out. But most of the time, I like going from the outside in. It just, it's it's my language and I love it. And I love how the European, and I mean really France and France, Germany, um, the Netherlands, there was something there different from the London stage where really, you you would go into a space and you did not know what the hell was going to happen. I mean, Mm -hmm. you could, you as an audience could not just sit back and listen. Mm -hmm. You were engaged fully. And that is what I've always loved and I admire so much. Do you know Complicity, the company Complicité, which is, yeah. What do you think of them? Never saw them perform, just the stories. So good. Yeah. So good. You know, as fledgling actors, the big hurdle, the first big hurdle is to learn how to listen to yourself, right? Whether you're, you're truly using a memory or you're truly present with your, if you're truly breathing and present in the space at any given time, um, and not somewhere else, not trying to perform the thing the way you did in your bedroom the night before, not, <laughs> you know, not, not worried about the previous moment, not worried about the next moment, not worried about what happened off stage. Um, that's the first big hurdle. And then I think the next big hurdle is if you're going to go this route is to pull down the fourth wall and learn to have an, a relationship with a sensitivity to your audience, right? To be listening for that breath catch in the second row, to be listening to the chuckle happen from the camera operator, yep. to be to be truly aware of that and understand that is not something you're trying to ignore. That is abs. That is actually something that you're you. It, those are gifts. 
Well, exactly. Of the they, moment, right? They are giving themselves. They are giving right. to you. They are part of this performance thing. It's a, it's a and give this and is, take. This is why in Clown we begin with usually just one clown up or right. or the or a couple of clowns up, but just engaging with the teacher and the audience. What does right. the audience think? What do you say? Admit right. you try admit your mistake. What is the crap you're standing in right now? You know what happened? What were you trying to do? And then what's happened? Did it go well? Did it not? Right, just that. And then the third great hurdle, I think, in in growing up as an actor is you have these two points of focus, yourself and the audience. Now the third, the other clown. Right. On the stage. <laughs> right. right. And to be able yeah. to to be able to train yourself self to be sensitive to all three of those things at the same time, that is the muscle that you were building. I mean, Lecoq was the guy who started all of that. And, uh, and then so many people have gone further from it. We even see it now, some of the new series and shows in the last five years where the fourth wall comes down and people are talking to the camera. But I think it comes from this, this training that a lot of people have had who were doing that. You're suddenly stripped and you're so present. And I love that. It's I, a, it's a, it's an organ you grow. It's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's as clear when I when I when I shift into clown focus. It is as clear as if I changed costume. Yeah. Or yeah. It was you know sat down or whatever. It's just so. It's just so such a switch, and I don't use it all the time. Obviously, there, there are times when it is absolutely not appropriate in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. And then other times it's like, it's all you have, <laughs> you know, yes. That's yes. Sort of maybe the, sometimes those are the, those are the best moments, but here's my question for you. Don't you, do you, do you not get tired uh, of having to explain to Americans what you mean when you say clown? <laughs> no, because it's, uh, I mean, first of all, I've, I've taught clown now for, I mean, I can't tell you how many years yeah. and I have kept up with so many of my students who are, amazing. Um, and I feel that it's, it's happening all over more and more people know what it is. And, um, I would say people are studying it all over the world and there are some extraordinary things. You see the cultural differences. I think you have to experience clown anyway. It doesn't, it's not an intellectual thing as much as it's, it's in the doing and it's terrifying every time you do it. There's no question about it, uh, because yeah. it's always about failure. So, I don't care who you are. I, I once taught you. Do you know the show Nicholas Nickleby? No. Well, the, oh, never mind. It was the RSC who came and they did this show. It was two days, nine hours of performance every day. It was extraordinary. They were mm. so amazing. And a group of them ended up asking me to teach a clown workshop while they were doing these huge amount of Broadway performances. Remarkable. The things they came up with they were all terrified and then they were all they all were able to break through because they just had that stay with it you just keep going push through it maybe that's what all acting is i don't know i mean you it's it's being able to push through it but it's also recognizing your point of view of the world and how you want the world to see you or how you think the world sees you it's all of those things combined um failures you know and this is part of this is part of clown you know yeah. Is it that we, we have to, we have to, as artists, we have to change our relationship. Coming, coming in, you know, leaving the civilian world and entering the world as an artist, you have to change your relationship to failure. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because we have this really negative relationship, especially in the United States with failure. But if you weren't, if you're in school, and or you're developing or you're training whatever and you are not failing on a regular basis you are n there is something drastically wrong yeah. <laughs> there is something really terrible so you're doing something wholly wholly wrong and unfortunately you know or fortunately nobody told me that i had to figure it out for myself but it, that's a reason that you're that you're in a school or you're in a place where you're training is to is to fail safely and then, and maybe also to teach you that failing is not the death you think it's going to be. I fail all the time. You right. know, I, 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 I go for broke and takes that I'm like, nope, don't ever use that. Please don't <laughs> use that. Or, or I go back and I see something that got printed and used. I'm like, eh, I could have done better, but I'm going to let that go. 
because it's on to the next thing. Well, you have to take risks. If you don't risk, you're not going to have anything extraordinary. You're just going to be kind of blah all the time. You know, what's funny is I would, when I was, when I was teaching, I would, one of my, the assignments that I would give, and it was, I would never make people do it. Right. But I would, if I felt somebody needed it, I would say next class, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick a partner and you guys are, you're going to come in and you're going to present a, see anything from contemporary American drama. And it is, you're going to present a, I want it to be a five to 10 minute scene. And it is going to be the worst acting you have ever done. <laughs> it has to be so bad. It's undeniable that you are awful. That was the one assignment that most people would shy away from mm. and not take me up on. But when they did, what was amazing, the feedback was like, I've, I never thought you were capable of that. Yeah. Yeah. Or there was always a moment that was brilliant. Yep. That's you know? it. That's it's exactly yeah. it. It's, it's a perfect exercise because it's not tight control in. It's going with it. And, um, and yes, it takes preparation. It takes a lot of different things to then be free enough to just really go with something. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Anne Bogart in one of her, her, her books, the one that I was recently reading, there was uh, What's the Story, and which is wonderful. I highly recommend it. I think it's in that one, although it might be in the Resonance book. She's talking about she needs limits in order to really excel. That if she sort of is given a, okay, it's a big budget, you can take the time you want, she finds that much harder to come up with something. Um, how many creative on your own ventures have you done? Uh, not a not a ton. I've 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 written and directed a couple of short films. Um, well, that's pretty great. Yeah, I, enough to know that it's not it's not where my talent lies. <laughs> ah. Um. I've I've written nothing really published. Uh, Brandon and I have a book in the book in the works that we we need to get back to. Um. You know, in the podcast. Uh. I'm uh, fortunately. I've, I've managed to stay employed this whole time. Uh, and unfortunately I am not great at doing multiple creative things at once. Mm. I'm really not. Um, number one, because I shy away from burnout, especially when you're the lead of a show, that's yep. easy to, it's easy yep. to do. And number two, it's just not the way my brain works. It's hard for it. It's hard. Transition can be difficult for me. You know, yeah. it, speaking of Anne, um, one of my favorite stories that she would tell us in class is um, when Heiner Mueller was visiting and this was a year before I was there. And one of the people in the year ahead of me uh, after class, after Heiner had been speaking for three hours uh, had wandered up to Heiner and <laughs> said, so got any device? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and Anne just almost just, shriveled into the corner because <laughs> she was like the, oh my god you idiot and heiner didn't even blink he just looked straight at him and he said you do not need to worry about transition because you and we all have a body right we are the same animals you don't have to explain to me why you're going from point A to point B or how you're getting okay, there. You just I go. See. You just go. You what Anne likes to call tesseracting. Have you read this in any of her books? Yeah. It's, it's, a, t it's a term she really. There's a. I forget which science fiction, old science fiction book, when in which there was a tesseract. It was a, a kind of a teleport, where you, where you would just fold time, and instead of traveling from one place to the other, you would just suddenly you were there, and so she likes to talk about tesseracting to to do away with transition and suddenly you are you are working the structure from point to point uh and and there's a quality to that depending upon how that's handled there's a quality to that that does does um it does cause our fellow humans in the audience to lean forward a bit to take that journey with us. Well, the, yeah, to, they have to, to engage. To try to keep up. Right, keep up, exactly. There, there's nothing worse than I feel like I'm being led by the hand at a very slow oh. slow pace when I'm sitting in an audience. No, it's horrible. 
Yeah. And now Andre, on the other hand, Andre Serban hated this idea. <laughs> hated this idea. Loved the fact that Anne disagreed with him, but hated this idea because to him, as a director, a transition was everything. Yeah, but see, directors, here's what I think. I think it's different from actors to directors sometimes. And I also think Serban, he did things that would, he would go out of realism with a lot of his directing, but it was so organic. What's her name? Running at the end of uh, uh, saying goodbye to her house in the cherry orchard. It was the manifestation of what we're feeling from the text of the mm -hmm. situation that the character is going through. And it's not realistic to run in that that very choreographed way, but it works because heightened realism. Um, going back to what we were talking about in terms of um, getting rid of transition or or trusting the audience to take the journey with us. I found myself recently really falling in love with uh, screenwriting. Uh, I, I didn't have to, we didn't have to hunt so hard for this in, in playwriting, but in, in screenwriting, both in film and, and television. And fortunately, there's starting to be a lot more of it. Uh, I, I hate calling it the golden age of television because it seems like we're putting a cap on things right now. <laughs> so I don't, I don't use that term, but uh, the age of television we're in right now where we have uh, so many more choices and a lot um, a lot of very smart work going on. I've found myself gravitating towards work where the writer is very judicious about what information he or she is providing us right. along the way and very and very conservative about it and because I find that so much of uh, you know, it was, there was that famous David Mamet memo to his writers complaining about the, the network notes that, that, that the, the network note that was about providing information. Oh, exposition, exposition. Him oh, off. God. oh my God. That memo. Did you ever read that memo? It was incredible. No. <laughs> what it does to me as an audience member is that I find myself leaning forward in the chair just enough, not to, not because I'm lost, not lost, but because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put something together that hasn't quite been put together for me. It's the reason that 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 a joke works. You know, the that's the the big thing that I learned when I forced myself to do stand up, which was terrifying, oh, is I that bet. you're not trying to make the joke. You you what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring one idea and then another idea just close enough to each other so that the audience can create that synapse of meaning between the two. Because laughter amongst a group of people is our way of saying to each other, oh, I get that. Do you get that? Because I get that. I understand that. It's the same reason that we sob as a group and we when we hear other people sobbing in the audience, it's us saying to each other, I understand this thing, do you also? It's the collective consciousness and it's fantastic. I think that's well said, which brings me right back, if I can just digress one second, back to one of the funniest, God, there've been some hilarious clown improv people have done, but there was one class I was doing and this woman was terrified, absolutely in terror. Her face was just totally open and in terror. And she came out, with this rubber frog on a string and, and she had put a ball inside the frog. She just put the ball inside the mouth and she stood there and the actor was in terror and really felt she was bombing, did not know what to do. And I would not let go. I didn't relent. She had to be up there for a long time and she's standing there in terror and we are all watching and we're all <laughs> projecting. Okay. And I swear to God, after about four full minutes, the ball just dropped out of the frog's mouth and rolled on the floor and everybody lost it. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was like miraculous. And it was to me one of the greatest lessons of just stay there, just stay there. You don't know what's going to happen and be open to it. You know, it was so great. I was yeah, just thinking the, of that. There, that reminds me of uh, our very first clown class uh, with Gregor Paslowski. Oh, Gregor. Yes. Okay. So we show up and he <laughs> sits us in a semicircle and, you know, facing the, the stage. 
And then he goes, and I remember him pulling the door shut. (laughs) And then he comes over to us and he says, you are all going to stand up in front of the audience one at a time. And you will not sit down until you have made everyone laugh simultaneously. That's Lecoq, by the way. Oh, God. Yeah, it's terrifying. And so one of my classmates very bravely decides to go first. And it's not, it's not good. Like, she was up there for about 45 minutes (laughs) doing all these things to try and elicit laughter. And it just nothing, nothing was working because she was holding on so tight and pretending that it was all fine. And it got bad. Like she started crying. Right. And it was just, it was, oh, it was heartbreaking. Now, in the studio next to us, the second years happened to be practicing stage screams. <laughs> Right. I know what's good. And all of us, all of us are like, is she not hearing this? Is she not hearing this? And then finally, after like another 10 minutes ago, we're just like sitting in this puddle of tears. She seems to hear for the first time what is actually happening around I her. She, I and hope she, she starts screaming. And then she, no, well, she, she could have, but she was... <laughs> Not that brave at that point. She just points at the wall and nods to us. And we just died. And he said, okay, you're done. That's all right. Yeah. And that's all it took, right? That's, that's all it, it took is just acknowledging what was happening. Yes. And and then suddenly we could have empathy for it because we knew where she was. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, we actors will do everything to pretend that it's going well when it sucks. <laughs> and it just sucks. And it's like, stop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Acknowledge it. It's so amazing. Yeah. My first like real success, I think, was we had to bring in uh, we had to bring in a trick to play on another clown. Oh right, the ABC and, trick. Um, oh god. And I had I would I had really prepared mine. I had I had gone and I I had bought I'd spent money I really shouldn't on like a really nice thick juicy steak raw steak. And I um, had attached a fishing line to it, right? <laughs> and, I, and I hit it off stage in the dressing rooms. And then when it came time for me, and my, my clown was this little bitty guy that always squatted and had his shirt over his, over his legs and like my hair up in like two ponytails and very strange clown, long sleeves. And I, I brought up the, the, biggest, the biggest guy in, in our class who <laughs> his clown was just kind of like, needed to be led places because he just didn't really uh he was just he was this clown was really dumb and uh and i i stood him in the middle of the stage and then i walked off stage and he was out there and and you know i'm i can hear people chuckling as i'm trying to get the damn steak ready and um and then finally came time and i just like i i (laughs) twirled that thing and i threw that steak as far as i could out onto the stage and it went it slapped right down next to him and he just looked at it and looked at the audience <laughs> and everybody died laughing and I wasn't even on the stage. Yep. I sort of read how this was going to go and I let the, the, the laughter die down. And then I s- slowly just started like tugging, oh, tugging on the stake <laughs> and he didn't do anything, which I was pretty sure he wouldn't. And I just said, Hey, don't you want some steak? <laughs> More laughter. It's going to get the way. <laughs> More laughter. <laughs> and I played that thing all the way, all mm. the way, pulling that steak all the way back to the dressing room until Gregor called me out and made me explain, <laughs> as my clown, explain what my intention was. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, see, that stuff is so brilliant. I remember, you know, in NYU Tisch, they have these big, big, tall uh, windows, floor to ceiling, you know, really high. Right, right, right. And so I'm teaching, it, it, this was, I can't remember whose class it was. It, they were a very funny group. And I was at that point in the training where I'm going, um, I'm having them audition for me and I'm going like, well, I'm looking for a, uh, a stunt, um, a stunt person, a stunt actor. And uh, I would hold up 
pictures of stunt people and they would have to try to get their faces to look like them, you know? And, and then I said, <laughs> <laughs> and they would, and the more they would really try to do it. I mean, it was hilarious. Right. And then I'd say, well, I'm looking, here's what we need. And it's, it's going to be, um, it's over a million dollars, but we need someone to jump out of this window down to the street. Can, can you do that? And he's like, oh yeah, I can do that and everything. And I mean, it took forever, but he finally is just standing standing up, looking down, like really deciding, do I want to kill myself today or not? <laughs> you know, that that whole thing. And I mean, taking, a, you know, 15 minutes to just put the window up a half an inch, you know. <laughs> and it, it, it is, though, great, I have to say. Um, well, in, it, just in closing, uh, let's talk just a little bit about, I mean, I have a million subjects I could keep talking to you about. Fatherhood, just can we, it's the most significant wonderful thing happening here it's <laughs> sure isn't it yeah. it's it's just yeah. um how how uh other than the obvious what are some some things you've been thinking about since you've had this jewel in your life oh man um you know what's it's what's funny is well there's a there's a lot of things that you 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 kind of you you think you understand like you, you know it, but you don't really know it, you know, <laughs> like, like you, you know, when you're about to have a kid, you know, you're not going to be sleeping in for a while. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it's another thing to realize, oh, I'm not going to be sleeping in for uh, 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sometimes longer than that, now, Anson. Now I have to, I have to say I am blessed with a, with a, a wife who, who is, strong enough and and giving enough to cover for me when i've when i've been traveling um she's amazing and she does by far most of the work um but and just things like you know you're not gonna you're you're, you're not gonna go on vacation for a while you know that like like could i could i could we me and my wife and my daughter go to an all-inclusive resort in baja right now sure and do exactly what we're doing right now right, right right now i like to joke about all that stuff but but the but the other thing you don't really think about is the how you want your child to experience the world until she gets here right um we're kind of grappling with the fact that we don't have a neighborhood around us right now there you sure. go that's i'm I'm like, yeah. when I when I found out Dara was pregnant, I was like, oh, I'm buying a telescope. <laughs> I, it had never occurred to me that I wanted to buy a telescope. <laughs> Suddenly, I was researching telescopes. But I want my I want my daughter to have a sense of wonder about the universe. Right. right? I was like, oh, I'm buying a globe. I where do you get a globe? I have no idea. Should I go eBay? How does it? How much does it cost to ship a globe? <laughs> and what? And how much has the globe changed? since that globe was made right? <laughs> right uh just stuff like that and um and gosh you know the changes that the things the development it happens so fast man you you miss it, it it's extraordinary it was, when i yeah. when i saw you in vegas i i came home and she'd grown another tooth she was crawling and she was sitting up by herself i was like wow. what that's huge it's i was huge. gone for three days <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's amazing. I was, I was half expect, <laughs> I was I was half expecting to come back from Atlanta and see her playing violin. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, all those things will happen. It's the unknown. You know, we expose them to so many things because we we go. Well, are they an artist? Are they an accountant? Well, what what are they? What are their instincts here? Oh, she'll let you know. She'll. Let oh you know. yeah, they definitely do. Yeah. But what was amazing is I started to feel because I had to be in L.A. and that's one time when I really wanted to get out of L.A because I couldn't let him down to the end of the driveway. I mean, there had just been all these horrible kidnappings and things that had happened to three-year-olds. And I was just like, okay, this is not going to work. So that's when I decided to go to France. And mm -hmm. what was amazing is he could have so much freedom, probably the kind of freedom you had growing up and I had growing up, where in this little med medieval village, they would play tag for four hours at night. <laughs> no one had computers. You know, they'd just be running around and everyone in the village knew where everyone's kid was because it was it butts up against a mountain and a forest. And so you didn't have cars passing through or anything. And there was something about that that was 
I think he's really glad that we had that experience because it opened him up to, oh, not everybody speaks English and there are these different things. And, you know, on the other hand, what's hilarious is I had taken him to Paris when he was like tiny, you know, years. And when he was about nine, a friend of his was going to go to Paris and he said, oh, mom, I'd love to go to Paris sometime. And I'm like, what? You've been like 16 times, dude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm really glad it worked, all those museums and everything. <laughs> and you you realize how much of it is just like what my desire was because right. he didn't even remember. But it, it's it the journey does not end, Anson, even when they're 30. OK, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it it. um there's nothing like it. It is absolutely the greatest um, exp- to learn about love, and they teach you about love, and it is pretty, pretty amazing. And they also teach you who you are, and some of it's pretty ugly, <laughs> but you, you know. <laughs> but it's yeah. just a—it's a wonderful thing. It's really a wonderful thing. Yeah. I'm happy for you. I'm really happy for you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you and Derek. And and I hope she does like uh, that book was one of my yes. favorites. Yes, thank you so much for that that the that 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 beautiful copy of Velveteen Rabbit and of course the stuffed bunny which she loved immediately. Oh, she, she was so adorable. But we have to we're, but we're having to figure out how to keep it away from the Great Dane because the Great Dane thinks oh, anything like well, that is Oh, well, they yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh yeah that's perfect for a great dane oh my god yeah the bunny will become real very quickly oh it'll be gone yeah it'll be gone it'll be down his gullet <laughs> you have a great dane wow yeah yeah so we have three we have three dogs yeah but the the bulldog is no more right or well the french bulldog is, yeah. died when i was shooting uh discovery Okay. Now we have an English bull that we've had for oh. even longer, and um, and we have a Maltese Havanese mix. Wow, that is that is a yeah, group. So and how do, and they, do they all get large. along? I mean, they all get along. Who who's they the- kind of they kind of they kind of let each other be. There, are, <laughs> there, you cannot imagine three more different dogs. Yeah, how did that happen? You know, the, the little one. He 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 grew up he didn't grow up around other dogs so he doesn't kind of doesn't get other dogs uh occasionally he'll he'll play with another dog but very rare um the english the english bulldog betty lou she uh she just wants human love she just that's all she cares about uh she's not into long walks she's not into playing (laughs) except if it's with the vacuum cleaner and then the Abel is just the uh, just a gigantic scaredy cat. Oh my god! Yeah, that's, that's so funny. Great Dane scaredy cat. I love it. Perfect. Yeah, we still can't turn on the 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 um, ceiling fan because when we first got him, we made the mistake of turning it on, and he still chat. He still that was wow. Gosh, was that two years ago? Two and a half years ago? He still checks to see if it's on. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, no idea when well. I'll see you, but I'm sure it'll be at, near some autograph table. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'll see you there. All right. And thanks. Thanks, thanks a million. Thanks a lot. Fun. Yeah. All right, sure. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Anson Mount not only sleeps in his own bed, he makes it. He also makes his own pottery, if you check out his Instagram. And he has a wonderful podcast called The Well. Very multitasking person and very talented. It was a pleasure speaking with him about his life and the craft of acting and, of course, theatrical clown. I hope you enjoyed this season of Investigate Who Do You Think You Are. I've had a great time interviewing all my friends and people I didn't know well but have now gotten to know better. Take care, everyone. Lots of love.